You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dunn. That's right. Welcome into another homoerotic episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from ESPN.com, and joining us, as always, just a couple of bloody guys rolling around trying to influence the youth of America to turn gay uh, from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today, it's Ben Folks. Ben, you're fresh back from Montreal. How are you? I'm good. I, I'd assume that the youth of America was already mostly gay. Mostly, yeah. Yeah. But those guys holding out. Yeah, <laughs> there's there's few holdouts because their dads won't let them watch uh, UFC and thereby turn them gay. We're gonna get you. Yeah, we're gonna get you eventually. eventually. Yeah, it's an insidious plot. Yeah, uh, they'll we, see it on the street or something, and next thing you know, gay. We'll talk about that you know, at a bit more length later on, or at least I will. Ben, uh, you, uh, it sounded like you were pretty sleep deprived on your way home from Montreal. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that part wasn't great. You know, I I forget how that can happen with the East coast shows because it's already, you know, it's pretty late there. And then the UFC took their sweet ass time starting the post fight press conference as they want to do. Yeah. So by the time the press conference was over, the Dana white was done talking to the media afterwards. Uh, and then I made the you know, very short, like five minute walk back to the, the host hotel after that, by that point, it's about 3 AM. Uh, and then, you know, I've got a flight out early and it's an international flight. So you got to show up early so that a bunch of Canadians can all keep looking at your passport. Uh, so they run a tight ship up there. Yeah, they do. Um, so, yeah, by the time I finally made it back to good old Missoula, Montana, I, I was pretty tuckered out. Uh, did you find, though, that starting the press conference at 1.30 a.m. Eastern Time led it to end in a, in a more appropriate fashion? Because whenever I'm at a UFC press conference, I feel like we always get to that point where we're about 45 minutes in. And, like, everybody's kind of looking around like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah I'm we're good. done. Yeah. We're done. And then people ask questions for another 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, no, that still happened. Oh, good. Questions like, Dana, when is the UFC coming back to Dallas? Yeah. Stuff no, like or that. the dude with the German accent is going to get up and ask when the UFC is coming back to Germany right that can, or you know the thing I always get frustrated with is people being like so what do you think now for Carlos maybe a rematch with uh, Rory Mc you know or like rematch with this guy rematch with that guy and it's like dude he is not going to make fights at the press conference he says that every time that he is he's 154 not. UFCs <laughs> are still asking those questions yeah it, that just doesn't happen but yeah we always get to that point you know and there should be by now, you ought to be able, like you say, to be able to hear some questions and be like, okay, that question proves that we're done. Uh, I had the same thing at the fan Q&A with Rory McDonald uh, before the weigh-in where there weren't a whole lot of people lined up to ask questions to begin with because it was kind of a weird setup for a fan Q&A. And at one point, a fan asked, hey, Rory, where'd you get them socks? And I just wanted to be like, okay, that's it. <laughs> That's pull the plug, yeah. Mike Goldberg, or whoever's we, up there. We, we, it was Reed Harris who was running it. We officially have nothing left to talk about. Uh, that proves it right there. So let's all stop. Well, as usual, this week's episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast comes to you in three rounds. Round number one this week, for those wondering how George St. Pierre would look coming off uh, knee surgery in 18 months out of the cage, the answer turned out to be pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, in round number two, St. Pierre's win over Carlos Condit now apparently sets the stage for a long-awaited super fight with middleweight champion Anderson Silva, so why don't I feel that super about it? And in round number three, we'll do that thing that we do seemingly every week where we check in with what's going on in the life of Ronda Rousey. Feels like it just wouldn't be a co-main event podcast at this point if we didn't like a fucking just dude weekly, in this beautiful body. Just weekly have a talk about someone who's yet to even fight in the UFC. <laughs> Uh, all that plus Master Tweet Theater, uh, tips for a well-rounded fight fan, and just saying stuff. But first, let's listener mail. Listener mail. This week's first question comes from Brady Carlson, still the undisputed champion of listener mail, getting his questions read on the podcast. He clearly has tapped into something to figure out how to get us to read his questions. Should referees be saying things like, don't leave it in the hands of the judges to the fighters during their fight? This happened a few times during the Macau Macau card and it rubbed rubbed me the wrong way. Macau. Comments? 
yeah, I think uh, Brady hits on a really good point here. And I noticed that when that was happening, that yeah. is is not that guy's job, no. as I yelled at the television several times <laughs> uh, during the early morning hours of that Saturday when we watched UFC Macau. I could understand, Macau, first of all, I could understand how referees might get confused about that sometimes because we do seem to feel that it is the referee's job to make sure that the fighters fight. You know, if the referee is standing there saying, like, come on, guys, action, or come on, guys, fight, like, that seems somehow okay, you know, for him to stand people up yeah, in order, but, or but that, separate I was them on the say, cage. Yeah, but that's, re- that's related to his job, because right. when he says, come on, guys, fight, he's essentially giving you a warning, saying, I'm going to stand you up, or, yeah. you know, some other terrible thing will happen to you. Yeah, I, and I'm just saying, I can understand how a referee who didn't think it through all the way might get from that position to thinking that his job is somehow to make sure that the fight is finished. Um it's also, though, the weird thing is that you would feel like there would be some kind of unspoken alliance between referees and judges because they're both, like, appointed athletic commission or, in this case, UFC acting as athletic commission officials. Like, they should both, like, the referee should feel that the judges are competent enough that they could do their job uh, <laughs> if we need them. So, so your point not... <laughs> is that the ref should be like, hey, guys, don't worry about leaving it in the hands of the judges. Yeah. These guys, they're I think they're going to do a good job. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can mean, vouch for these guys. Ideally, I understand you both want to finish the fight. However, if you did have to leave it in the hands of the judges, I think that they are not total fucking idiots. Like, uh, that should be more his position. Uh, although, probably just best not to yell any yeah, bullshit probably like that in the cage. not to go there. That's not really your job. Uh, the second question this week comes from Max. He asks, does the booking of Nelson Mitrione for the tough finals kind of prove that it might really just be better to say no when the UFC calls with a request to take a very tough last-minute fight? Mitrione didn't like his chances against Cormier and ended up with a bigger fight than he had, but with an opponent opponent that he could really take it to. Do you pick up the phone at all when Dana calls anymore? Um... I don't know about the assumption that Mitrione didn't like his chances against Cormier. I think that's pretty accurate, okay. actually. All right, we'll just go with that then. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he certainly, I guess he said on the MMA Hour today when he was on with, with Ariel Hawani that he called Joe Silva to request the fight with Roy Nelson after it turned out that Shane Carwin was injured. And that kind of makes it seem like it is a better idea to sort of call your own shots here and uh, turn down fights that seem tougher. And as Dana White likes to say, step up when uh, when you see a fight that you think you can go out there and win. Well, And you got to admit that this does seem like a better situation for Mitrione. Oh, yeah. Far better. Yeah. Far better. Yeah. I mean, because if you go out there and you get beat up by Cormier, I mean, the hardcores will understand what that means and who Cormier is. And, you know, he's really good at one of the things that you're not really good at. Uh, but uh, if you beat Roy Nelson, and I think he has a better chance of beating Roy Nelson, then uh, that probably means a lot more to, to some of the people out there. So I would think, though, the problem that you get yourself into more is when you turn down fights. Um, a, you know, the UFC is going to put your business in the streets and talk to everybody about how you turn down a fight, basically implying that you're a pussy. Um, but B, then if you turn down one, if the UFC then comes back and says, okay, how about this one? You, put your, you kind of paint yourself into a corner where you can't keep turning down fights. So as managers said when I talked to them about that whole the, – the politics of arranging that stuff is the more you turn down, the, the more pressure it puts on you to accept the next one or the next one. You just can't keep saying no. Eventually, you know, if you're a fighter and that's your job, you have to say yes to somebody. And for all you know, if you turn this one down, they might come back with one you like even less. Yeah, but I, and I think to speak to, to Max's point, it does put a very kind of strange spin on Dana White's continued, uh, I guess, assertions that he likes guys to quote-unquote step up and take fights because clearly, as Matt Mitrione has just pointed out, he's kind of putting the power in their hands at this point to go out and sort of pick and choose what they want to do, which I don't think is probably his intent. Yeah, well, and Dana was kind of going off on uh, Czech Congo a little bit in the press conference or the, the scrum after the press conference in Montreal talking about him turning down fights. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things where you can understand why the fighters just don't want to constantly say take whatever fight the UFC thinks they should take. Uh, at the same time, you, you have to weigh the, the pros and the cons there because the, the UFC is going to go out there and, and talk about you if, if they feel like uh, they're kind of pissed off at you about it. From Jared Crowley, 
comes the third question this week. Jared asks, we just learned from the amazing non-medically licensed nutritional therapist slash weight cutting expert Mike Dolce that Johnny Hendricks cut 41 pounds for his fight. 41 goddamn pounds. That's in all caps. Why the fuck, again, in all caps, <laughs> do we continue to respect weight classes as a way to make a fight more even when guys are fighting up to three fucking, again, in all caps, weight classes <laughs> below their average walk around weight? I say go back to the old days, throw out the weight classes and feed them to the fucking wolves again. Again, in all caps, of course, there are better options. What are they? This system is currently broken. Is it? Just because some dudes are cutting a lot of... I mean, he he made the weight, and then he won the fight, so... I, and also, I feel like uh, the suggestion that, what, Mike Dolce should have to be licensed in weight cutting or something in order to be an expert... Clearly, Mike Dolce knows what the hell he's doing, uh, because he has gotten a bunch of dudes down from, you know, heavy, heavy weight cuts... Uh, and then they've performed pretty well. So I think just experience should tell us that whatever Mike Dolce knows about weight cutting, uh, it's it's for real. And also, I mean, if some guys are better at weight cutting than other guys, and some guys can do that, that's an advantage that they have to work with. I feel like yeah. that's fair. Yeah, it's just part of being better at the job than yeah. the other guy. I do sort of see the point, though. I see Jared's point in that, uh, you know, having these weight classes ostensibly is supposed to uh, to make sure that guys, you, you know, don't come into a fight with a huge weight advantage or whatever. But really, it just kind of seems like you're just forcing everyone to, to cut as much weight as they possibly can. Um, I, that said, I don't know what you do to reform the system. I know some, you know, some places and some sports will have a, a same day weigh in. They'll yeah. have guys who come back and, and weigh in the, the day that they're supposed to fight. And in certain cases, there are there are sports where you're not allowed to uh, to put, you know, you're only allowed to weigh in a certain amount heavier than you weighed in the day before. Yeah. For probably the most awkward way to describe it. And, you know, but yeah, I, I, and I wouldn't mind seeing something like that if the UFC wanted, the UFC seems pretty resistant to that kind of stuff. But um, I, I wouldn't mind if, if we went in that direction. But I don't blame anyone for using the, the current rules to the best of their advantage. I mean, no, that's what you're supposed to do. And I, when you look at Johnny Hendricks next to Martin Campman, uh, it didn't look like he had a tremendous size advantage. I think it's one thing to be like, okay, you're cutting down so that you can fight like significantly smaller dudes. Also, some guys get farther away from their weigh-in weight uh, when they're not fighting than <laughs> other guys do. Some guys stay a little closer to it. Other guys have to cut down from uh, really high up because they just let themselves get there. And like George St. Pierre was saying, uh, he's like, you know, a lot of guys can play with their weight a lot more. Um, he just feels like his body won't do it. So he does not allow himself to get too far over a, like a, a certain standard weight. So some guys yeah. do and some guys don't. And if we're going to talk about reforming the system, it would take a pretty much across the board move by several different state athletic commissions and if we're talking about that kind of sort of like en masse reformation process, there's some other stuff I would like to see them take yeah, on yeah. <laughs> before they get around to changing the way we do weight cuts. Anyway, uh, the last question this week comes from Alex P., who asks, do you guys think it's a little weird that the thing that bugged Dana White the most about Stefan Bonner getting popped for steroids is the fact that Bonner didn't tell him? Sounds like he would have let him fight and been cool with it as long as he had the heads up. I didn't actually see this comment from Dana White, so I'm he, he did make let it, you take it. He made it in the, the post-press conference scrum with reporters. Um, I, I agree with the first part that it is a little weird that that's he, – he did say that, that that's the thing that really bothered him is that Stephen Bonner didn't tell him. Uh, but I took that to mean that I'm disappointed he didn't tell me so that then we could have gone a different direction with that fight and not put him in it. Um, like he could have mm. said, hey – because what I mean, let's let's hope that's what he meant. Yeah. Right. Well, and I mean, he did not elaborate on it enough to to justify the conclusion. I think Alex P jumps to here. He said that uh, the first explanation he got from Stephen Bonner uh, was kind of that hey, he had been thinking he kind of thought his MMA career was over, so he had been thinking of maybe trying to do some pro wrestling stuff. Um, and so, of course, if you're going to do pro wrestling, then you get on steroids, right? I mean, that's that's yeah, that's you know, how the weight cutting steroids. <laughs> yeah. uh, but. Uh, yeah, that he then said, you know, I he could have just told me, and I took that mean that if he would have said, "Hey Dana, I've been thinking about doing pro wrestling or whatever," 
for whatever reason, I'm on some steroids right now, then Dana could have been like, okay, well, we'll find somebody else then if you're not going to be able to pass a drug test. Um, so I think I, I want to give Dana White the benefit of the doubt there yeah. and say that that's what he meant. It is still weird, though, that he would say that, you know, the thing that the thing that bothers him the most is that Stefan Bonner wouldn't tell him. I mean, I would think the thing that would bother you is that uh, you've got these fighters under contract who think that they can just do steroids. Like, that's troublesome. Yeah, maybe best not to think too deeply into it if you're the, <laughs> the guy who runs the, the world's largest mixed martial arts promotion. Anyway, that is the this episode of Listener Mail. If you have a question, comment, concern uh, for the podcast in future weeks, you can get a hold of us by going to the website comaineventpodcast.com and clicking the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. We get lots of mail every week, so uh, don't get frustrated out there, guys. Just you know, keep trying, keep trying. We'll get, we'll get your, your comments on the air at some point. Maybe, maybe. Uh, well, that's it for the intro. We're going to go ahead and get started right now on round number one. Round one. Well, it seems like George St. Pierre cleared up any questions about how he is feeling either physically or emotionally this weekend when he came out and, and really handled a very game Carlos Condit almost from start to finish uh, in the main event of UFC 154. I personally thought St. Pierre looked as good as ever and maybe even a little better than expected in the stand-up game uh, where where it seemed like he gave Carlos Condit, uh, you know, all he could handle and definitely held his own. Um also, I guess you could probably say that that this fight was was unexpectedly instructive than we what we saw George St. Pierre do in his most recent appearances because he had to weather some uh, adversity there yeah, in the third, third round when he pretty much ran straight into a Carlos Condit high kick. Uh, ben, what what impressed you the most about George St. Pierre? Or I guess if that's not you know if that's too much of a leading question, how did you think he looked and 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 what were your impressions? Uh, you know, I thought he looked great, especially considering that afterwards he talked about how he now believes that ring rust is a real thing. Uh, you know, because I was talking before the fight to Dan Hardy, who had trained a lot with GSP for this one, and he was saying that he didn't think ring rust would be much of an issue because he, he's his position on it was that MMA fighters uh, fight at 100% more often in the gym than, like, boxers who are just boxing with paid sparring partners. Whereas MMA fighters, you know, when you grapple, you can grapple at 100%. Uh, when they're sparring, they're often sparring with other guys who are, you know, serious pros, not guys who are just brought in to do a job and to give them certain looks. Guys who are actually trying to fight hard and prove something about themselves in there, so that you know they they don't fall as far out of like the real fighting conditions as boxers do. But GSP said he felt it. He felt that there was a difference of you know being in the gym and being under lights in the cage, and that you, that feeling you get is you know, enough different that, uh, you, if you don't have it for a while, it will affect you. But damn, I mean, if that's him rusty, <laughs> yeah, pretty good. I, you know, and people talked a lot this week about how he had been acting nervous and, uh, and, and had been kind of more honest than you expect maybe from a fighter in the week leading up to a fight about his nerves and, and how he was kind of scared of losing and all this stuff. And, you know, when Dana White went over to ESPN to do the car wash, what they call it when they go through all of the different shows and do all the interviews and then said later that George was supposed to do it, but uh, decided that he didn't want to, or, or was had gotten fed up with the media or, or, or something like that. Um, but yeah, you make a good point that, uh, if that's George St. Pierre feeling rusty and afraid, then man, there's, I don't know if, if, if his future opponents have much to hope for, because if anything, I thought that, uh, you know, except for right at the beginning of the fight, he really kind of frustrated Carlos Condit and froze up his offense. It looked like it, you know, Condit, we know as a guy who's a really, uh, aggressive striker and a guy who, who, you know, finishes most of his opponents. And, and on the other side of the coin is a guy who's really hard to finish. And, and for a lot of, a lot of the time during this fight, you know, except for that third round, which I think you can make the case that he won, it just looked like he, he couldn't really implement his game plan. didn't really feel like he could get off with the strikes like he wanted to probably because he was worried about the takedowns with, you know, George continues to have just ridiculous takedowns. Yeah, you know, it's weird after, after the fight, uh, somebody asked Condit in the press conference, you know, he did throw some kicks like were you did you think at all about limiting your kicking against a guy like GSP who uh, is liable to take you down and he did take him down off, off of at least one kick where he caught it and immediately went to the takedown 
Uh, and uh, Carlos's response was, you know, I figured he was probably going to take me down whether I kicked or not, so I might as well go out there and, and use everything I've got. Which, if that's the way you have to approach a fight with him, uh, that that's a hell of a, a thing to get past. If you feel like I'm eventually going to end up on the bottom probably more than once against this guy. And, you know, GSP was hitting him with some stuff when he was down there, too. It wasn't like he was just holding him there. So no. you know, that, that's got to be psychologically difficult to deal with if you feel like you really just don't have a chance of stopping his takedowns. Yeah, well, let's talk about this, this other aspect because you, you just mentioned that, you know, St. Pierre was uh, enforcing some offense on Condit when he was on top of him on the ground. I've seen from a couple of people who have written about the fight afterwards that this is sort of being regarded as a more exciting performance from St. Pierre than than previously, you know, so the, the, his most recent performances. I thought, for the most part, it was just vintage George St. Pierre. I didn't necessarily see anything that I thought was that different um, from what he normally does. I guess if you think it was more ex- exciting, it might have been because... He almost he almost lost there in the yeah. in the third. Well, that's definitely part of it, I think. But like, what, what about the this uh, impression of George St. Pierre that seems to be fairly widespread that that he's boring and he's too conservative? Because when I watch the guy fight, especially in this fight, I don't necessarily think that he's being too conservative. Especially, you know, even when he gets the guy on the ground and he's on top. He, you know, against Condit, he he was trying to improve his position. He was striking. He landed some nice elbows. Obviously, one that turned it into sort of a gore fest yeah. there for uh, for a while. Um, and he's standing up and trying to punch him from the feet. I, I, you know, if anything, I think it's a situation where he's fighting tons of guys that are really hard to finish. So I've never been a guy who was going to criticize St. Pierre because of his fighting style. Generally speaking, I like wrestling in the sport. I like the way George fights. I don't consider him particularly boring, but that does seem to be a tag that kind of follows him around. Do you think what he did this week uh, changes that at all? I think so. I also think, though, that some of the the boring criticism came from, like, if you look at the Josh Koscheck fight, like, that's a different kind of fight, one where he felt like, you know, he can win it from a distance on the feet and that you don't necessarily want to get into those, the things he does really well, like taking a guy down and ground and pounding him. And with Jake Shields, it was, you know, Jake Shields' best chance might be submission-wise, so you got to be careful uh, if you're on top of that guy, and again, if you feel like you can just kind of outpoint him with, with jabs and, and strikes from a distance, then, then you can go ahead and do that. I think in a lot of ways, watching a guy just stand back and jab the hell out of somebody on the feet is a lot more monotonous than watching him take him down and then just beat the hell out of him from the top position. I think that shows like a physical dominance a lot more. Like He said about Carlos Condit that he felt a couple times like Conant was giving him an opening to try for a submission. But he also felt like the mistake he made in that Dan Hardy fight was getting really focused on submissions and trying to finish it that way. And you know, sometimes giving up a good position to strike from uh, in order to try and get a submission and then failing to get it and having to start all over again. And he didn't want to make that mistake with Carlos Condit. So instead of going for a submission when he saw an opening, he said he just wanted to hurt him from the top position. And it looked like he did hurt him. I mean, he he was putting some serious elbows and then some dropping some some bungalows on him, as, as Rampage Jackson would say. Uh, and I just think that if you watch a guy doing that, uh, it's really hard to come away and not feel like, wow, that was a dominant performance. I mean, it's if you can stand outside and jab at a guy, that's one thing. It's like you know exploiting one flaw in the guy's game. If you can put him on his back and then just beat the shit out of him from the top as you please, then. You know that really shows that that you are the much better fighter there. Yeah, and I think that's probably what we all expected from George. I was I was impressed by what he was able to do on the feet. Uh, you know, coming in, I would have thought that uh, that would have been Condit's game, and that that if there were any spots where St. Pierre could get himself in trouble, it would be if he if he decided to stand or and, and mess with the striking game too much. Obviously, at one point he did get kicked right in the face, but that you know you hate to call a shot lucky, but that just seemed like kind of a almost a fluky shot where, where Condit threw that kick as St. Pierre was kind of like running in kind of and ended up catching him. But for the most part, I thought, you know, St. Pierre afforded himself on the feet pretty well and uh, landed some of the more significant shots there uh, throughout the fight, which, which, you know, I was impressed by. And maybe this, uh, I think some, if we, if we go back to that old, uh, you know, the, the criticisms of George St. Pierre, I think a lot of people say he's not really evolving as a fighter. And I, I don't really see that. I thought that he looked a lot better on the feet this time than we've seen him. And I think that that, you know, is evidence that he is getting better and can get better, which 
I don't know, man. Maybe that's scary for the yeah. for future opponents. <laughs> well, you know, but the, I still feel like after watching that fight, if you look around at other welterweights and think like, man, if this is what the guy can do, who has a good chance against him, uh, I still really think style-wise that that a fight with Nick Diaz is one of the more interesting and intriguing options at welterweight because there you have a guy who will not no matter what you do to his face with you know jabs or strikes from a distance he's not going to stand out there and then and just let you do it he's going to pressure you he's going to keep coming forward and doesn't mind getting hit and he's also a guy that if you take him down does have like things he can seriously threaten you with off his back and i think that's the kind of thing that uh like an interesting challenge that we haven't seen george st pierre face you know quite yet uh, so still though i mean some people i've seen on twitter have have been saying hey what about george st pierre diaz and and yeah i agree that that is an interesting fight and a fight that a lot of people want to see but nick diaz needs to get a win yeah first. okay it's not like you can just throw him in there yeah i guess so whatever fine nick let nick diaz get a win and then let, let's see what the situation is fine you know also uh, you know everybody's going to talk about johnny Hendricks now after he goes out there and, and knocks out Martin Campman, and yeah, a guy who was a national champion wrestler uh, at Oklahoma State, but can also knock you out with one punch. You know, that is an interesting challenge as well. You know, it seems like uh, when you look around at the kind of guys that George St. Pierre has already fought uh, and the kind of fighters they are, that it, surprisingly he has a few options that seem like something new still left out there for him. Because it seemed like a few months ago we were all looking at the welterweight division like it was just a goddamn wasteland and George St. Pierre had decimated it all yeah for sure I think that the you know you could make the case the welterweight division is probably as deep and interesting as it's been in a long time right now and uh that's one of the reasons why the super fight with Anderson Silva doesn't necessarily uh you know wind me up like it might have if they had booked it a year or two ago here Um, we go and we will talk about that a little bit later in 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 round number two uh before we do that though the world's leading theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock will be coming in to lead us both in another episode of Master Tweet Theater, and we're going to do that right now. And now, Master Tweet Theater. And now, it's the time where we welcome back to the podcast noted theatricalist and friend of the show, Sir Nigel Longstock. Sir Nigel, how are you? Good day to you, sir. I am feeling well. Well, that's good. You know, first, before we get into Master Tweet Theater this time around, I think we need to address a a growing internet rumor that you and Chad Dundas are in fact one person. Not true, sir. A disgusting nightmare scenario. Well, be that as it may, I, I mean, some people ask... Why don't Sir Nigel and Chad ever talk at the same time? And why have they never been photographed together? Uh, I mean, I don't know how you answer uh, these accusations, these important questions. I assure you there's a simple explanation. It is merely because we hate each other. (laughs) Okay. Well, just so that we put to rest any concerns that people on the internet might have, that you two are the same person, uh, I would like you both to speak simultaneously about whatever topic you choose. In three, two, one, go. I would not wish being Sir Nigel Longstuck on my worst enemy. He is one of the worst. That's enough, goddammit. All right. You see what you made me do, people on the internet? You see how you ruin everything? Now shut up and let us get on with Master Tweet Theater. Sir Nigel, when you're ready. Very good. The insolence of the internet corrected. Tweet the first. You know what I like. Sunny skies in Montreal. Shit I like at UFC 154. Huh. Okay. Uh, I think Is this a, a Kanye West reference? The, that shit I don't like? That appears to be that shit the tweeter does like. Okay. All right. Um, sunny skies in Montreal. Uh, so somebody who's on the scene for UFC 154. Uh, also somebody familiar with uh, the work of Kanye West. Um... You know, I'm going to I'm going to surprise you. Uh and I'm going to say Mark Bocek, who turned out to be a Tupac Shakur fan as we learned with his walkout music. I was surprised because I think you literally cannot get any whiter than Mark Bocek. Um but hey. Well, that's a good guess. I didn't didn't know that. Uh boy. Um I'm just going to take in the, a shot in the dark and uh go with a guy who I probably I could surmise enjoys sunny skies and that's Chad Griggs. 
Okay. Huh. Both fine guesses, except for Chad's guess, which reveals a fundamental weakness of character. It is, in <laughs> fact, Ariane Celeste. Oh, oh god damn it. Ring girl Ariane Celeste, noted Skywatcher. <laughs> well, you son of a... Uh, in, in Chad Griggs' related news, he and I were both on the same flight out of, of Montreal. Uh, and, you know, when you show up on a plane... Looking like Chad Griggs, big dude with just burly fucking sideburns. I think everybody just feels safer having you on that plane. Because if there were terrorists thinking of hijacking it, that you know that plan has been aborted. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Sir Nigel, you go ahead. <clears throat> Tweet the second. About to get back into town and can't wait to hit up at Bass Pro Shops and get some good gear for duck hunting and deer hunting. Okay. All right. Um. So we're dealing with uh. One of MMA's good old boys, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say it's Matt Hughes. Good to go with the classics. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to guess the recently injured Shane Carwin, I think. Huh, okay. Not bad. Both fine guesses, both as we have come to expect wrong. It is, in fact, Johnny Hendricks. God damn it, that was going to be my other guess. Blowing his knockout of the night bonus on hunting supplies. Well, I, I'm sure that now Johnny Hendricks can afford the, the nicest duck call there is. One shot, one kill. <clears throat> Tweet the third. I am not impressed by your performance at George St. Pierre. No, oh, I got this one. Yeah. That's, that's the homie from the 209, Nick Diaz. Yeah, yeah that's, he's wearing his jeans and his work boots and tweeting that out. Yeah, I mean, he'll take them off if he has to weigh in, but he's putting that shit back on before he does the stare downs. Everybody get comfortable. You are correct, gentlemen. It is, in fact, Nick Diaz criticizing George St. Pierre from afar. (laughs) As George St. Pierre pointed out, though, when somebody mentioned that tweet to him at the press conference, he did do better against Carlos Conduit uh, than Nick Diaz did. So there's that. (laughs) Carlos Conduit is a tricky opponent. Tweet the fourth. Mamma mia! Seamus just executed the electric chair suplex on Big Show! Okay. So now we're talking about pro wrestling tweets, it seems. Uh, And we're also saying Mamma mia. You know what? I'm going to put those two things together. I'm going to say that's my boy Moro Ronaldo. Wow, that's a good guess. Uh, I'm just going to go play it kind of safe, friend of the podcast, known... Professional wrestling fan, Danny Downs. It's also a good guess. Both fine guesses. Exactly 50% correct in the aggregate. It is Mauro Rinaldo. Oh, what? Taking a break from announcing MMA to announce pro wrestling for free. That's, that's, I'm impressed. That's impressive that you put that together. Yeah. Fuck yeah. What do you think now, internet? <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. Discipline. Commitment. Consistency. These aren't sexy or trendy qualities, but they're the nuts and bolts of accomplishing goals or otherwise. <laughs> well, I, I thought it was going to stop before the or otherwise. We all thought it would. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so either somebody is being kind of funny in a subtle way or just kind of weird. You know who tweets out stuff like this a lot, I've noticed? Josh Koscheck. Really? So, yeah, these weird kind of like half-assed inspirational tweets um that fail to inspire at least me uh so that sounds like it could be a josh koscheck that's what i'm going with well i'm gonna stay much closer to home and guess the poet philip baroni tweeting out something that someone else probably said to him at some point <laughs> okay well we haven't had a poet philip baroni so i guess sir nigel you are correct you scoundrel it is the poet philip baroni uh, yes tweeting half-assed that, inspiration. son of a bitch Sir Nigel Longstock. Oh, God. (laughs) Well, that wraps up another edition of Master Tweet Theater. I think a lot of questions have been answered and great mysteries been solved. Sir Nigel, what have you got planned? Funny you should ask, sir. I'm beginning rehearsals for the sequel to 101 Dalmatians, 10,201 Dalmatians. (laughs) And what role will you be playing in this? Well, each of the 101 original Dalmatians has had 101 offspring, and I play the army corporal tasked with killing them. (laughs) Well, and just in time for the holidays, too. Sir Nigel, as always, good to see you. We thank you for stopping by. Good to see you, sir. (laughs) This has been Master Tweet Theater. Round two. Well, 
Ben, it's not a, a done deal yet because we don't know still how tremendously excited George St. Pierre is about it. But Dana White has gone ahead and said that he is going to make the super fight happen between Anderson Silva and George St. Pierre probably next May and probably in some mega stadium like Cowboy Stadium in Dallas or, you know, somewhere in Brazil or Canada. Uh, and I feel like a couple of years ago I would have been super excited about this fight, but now for uh, numerous reasons, as I discussed in, in a story I wrote on ESPN.com today, uh, I'm having a hard time getting getting jacked up about it, even though I feel like from the way you've been looking at me that you disagree with me. So I, I'm just curious. Like I understand how you can make the argument that uh, it's kind of unfair to George St. Pierre to put all this pressure on him, especially since he doesn't seem too enthusiastic about it. And just the notion of a super fight, it's kind of like, yeah, this is why we have weight classes so that you fight someone your own size. Uh, but at the same time, when you think about seeing those two dudes go at it, you know you, you would be excited for that if it happened. I mean, I, I find it hard to believe that if they did make that fight, by the time fight night rolled around, you'd be like, I don't know, maybe I'll watch this one, maybe I'll just read about it afterwards and watch the highlights like you'd be jacked for it if it happened i would watch it you'd be jacked i'm not sure that i would be jacked for it and for a couple of different reasons number one i'm not 100 percent sure it would turn out to be a very competitive fight i i, I think that you know saint if i think saint pierre maybe could make a run at it with his takedowns but uh you know if he gets clipped on the feet like he did a couple of times against carlos condor while he's fighting anderson silva I think it's probably over, and I think that, you know, I just think that St. Pierre would have a hard time dealing with the size and the length of Anderson Silva. I think that uh, you would have to put both the middleweight and welterweight divisions on hold, at least for a little while, which I think is a shame for the contenders in those divisions, most notably Johnny Hendricks at welterweight and, and Chris Weidman at, at middleweight, because uh, I really think that those guys pose interesting matchups for both of the champions. And, you know, another reason is, frankly, the emergence of John Jones as a guy that I believe is the best pound-for-pound fighter in the world. And uh, and the, the super fight everyone wants to see is Jones versus Silva. And I think that if you were the UFC and you are going to pull out all the stops in the way that they seem intent on doing to make this fight, if you're going to invest the resources and book this giant stadium and convince one of your major stars to take a fight that he doesn't seem overly excited about, do it to try to make Jones versus Silva. Don't do it to try to make the second best super fight, which is, in my opinion, I don't even know if it's if it's really worth it to to risk to take on all of the inherent risks to two of your major pay-per-view draws to put the division on hold and invest all these resources in a fight that, you know, the guy who loses is going to walk away looking like a lesser talent and the guy who wins, everybody's just going to look at him and be like, "Ah, eh, he should have fought John Jones anyway. You know, but I don't, I do agree with you there that John Jones versus Anderson Silva would be a more interesting fight. I also think that it is kind of bullshit the way Anderson Silva uh, seems to have, one take on a potential super fight where he fights a smaller dude and a completely different take on one where he has to fight a bigger dude. In fact, again, he he showed up uh, before the fight and had a little 15-minute Q&A with the media people before UFC 154 started uh, and said, you know, George St. Pierre, maybe. John Jones, no. Uh, but then right immediately after that said, I am here for fight. I work for UFC. Uh, and it was like, well... If that is true, then the UFC could theoretically tell you to fight anybody, right? Like, if you're just willing to, to if you're here to fight and you're willing to fight whoever the UFC says, then why would you say no to John Jones? Like, you're you're picking and choosing there. So, but maybe at the same time, if he does fight GSP, if they give him that super fight where he gets to fight the smaller man, then it kind of puts him in a position where if the UFC says, okay, now fight John Jones. It looks really bad if you say no because hey, you got to do it right. Like you, somebody else was willing to fight a bigger champion, and now you're not willing to do it uh, for the sake of a super fight. You know, to to work for UFC. I mean, are you here for fight or not? You know. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that that could be the silver lining. There is that if you have this fight with George St. Pierre and Anderson Silva, and Silva wins, then you might be able to have a better chance to book him against John Jones. On the other hand, the guy is not a spring chicken, and he is not getting any younger. And last we heard, I know that they're talking about having this fight as at catch weight now of, of 178 pounds is the last that I heard. Well, yeah, I mean, well, that's Anderson's 
idea. Is it? Well, he said 177 because he felt like it would be halfway between them. When George was asked, he kind of started dropping the thing. Well, hey, when he fought in Japan, didn't he fight at 168? So he can make it, right? Mm. See, the, the, one of the things that would really bother me about it and the thing that has always really bothered me about this idea is the notion, and this was back when they were talking about having it at 185, so I don't know if this is still the case, but the notion that St. Pierre would move up and then not come back to welterweight. Uh, because we all remember the the infamous comment made by Joe Rogan at the start of one of their pay-per-views that, that uh, George St. Pierre would insist on going up to middleweight naturally. And never uh, take the steroid. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how else we would expect him to move up to 185 pounds. <laughs> uh, which, you know, if that's the case, if we're thinking, if we're dealing with a situation where George St. Pierre isn't going to come back to welterweight, then I say absolutely not. Don't do it. I, it's too big of a loss to the division because the division, uh, like we said in the last round, I think it's as interesting as it's ever been with guys like Johnny Hendricks and, and uh, even Jake Ellenberger out there for, to, to fight St. Pierre. Um, if Silva's willing to come all the way down to 170, I guess. I still think that it would be too too big of a size advantage for him. But uh, uh, And also, I, let's just say for the record, I have a really hard time believing that Anderson Silva would do that. You know, I, I think that... GSP is smart and probably well within his rights to insist on the fight being contested a little closer to his weight than to Anderson. You know, I could understand why he wouldn't want to do the meet in the middle thing, uh, kind of for the reasons you said. And I do agree that if if it were to be a situation where we would lose George St. Pierre as a welterweight uh, as a result of this fight, then yeah, it's not worth it. At the same time, I feel like, and I don't know if it's necessarily out of the question for Anderson Silva to at least get closer to 170 because he doesn't have a hard time making 185 as it is, even though he's a pretty big guy. But I think the thing that might motivate George St. Pierre, apart from just the UFC continuing to offer him more and more money until he says yes, is if he does hang around at welterweight and say he beats Johnny Hendricks and then beats Nick Diaz, he's kind of still where he is, which is the greatest welterweight of all time, you know, the, the greatest 170-pound champion the UFC has ever had and, and MMA has ever had. It's hard for him at the place he is now to, to boost his legacy any more than that. You know, he, he's already there, so he's just kind of maintaining. It's kind of like how long can he hold on to it? It's not like, you know, what else new can he do? I agree that his, the odds are against him if he fights Anderson Silva. But if he does win that fight... Then we start thinking of George St. Pierre as the greatest fighter of all time ever. Yeah. It was not just as a welterweight. Yeah. So there's that point. appeal, right? I mean, he wants to be a great one. He wants to be remembered as a legend, as the greatest. You know, that'd be a way to do it, is to beat Anderson Silva. Sure. If you think he yeah. can. And yeah, in the same vein, though, in, in terms of being a, a smart fighter, I, I just have a hard time believing that Faraz Zahabi, who the last time I heard him talk about this fight, thought that St. Pierre should go down to 155 before he went up to fight Anderson Silva. Hard for me to believe that that guy and St. Pierre and all the guys that they have up there in that camp, you know, John Danaher and whatnot, hard for me to believe that all those guys put their heads together and come out believing that the best thing George St. Pierre could do for his legacy would be to fight Anderson Silva. Yeah, I don't think any of those guys are going to think it's a great idea. Uh, I do think, though, that the power of... The UFC and the fans and the media just keep pounding on you about it, like just waves crashing against the rocks there. And I think little by little, it gets you to give way. Because otherwise, like, do you want to hear about this for the next two or three years if you're George St. Pierre? I mean, you can keep, you can have a solid position where you say, no, I'm 170, I'm only going to fight at 170. If the guy can get down to 170, fine. If he can't, then I'm not going up. And like logically, you know, that's, it's kind of an unassailable position, but at the same time, it doesn't mean you're not going to hear about this shit constantly after every fight. You know, like he had to sit there after this fight. He had just had a great performance against Carlos Connick, comes back from injury. You know, it's a great night, and he has to hear a bunch of stuff about, will you fight Anderson Silva? Eventually, you might just get sick of hearing that. Yeah, no, that's, I think that that's a valid point. But again, if you're, if you're George St. Pierre and you are the guy who Dana White, at least, acknowledges as the UFC's biggest pay-per-view draw, kind of again and again whenever he gets asked about it, does it hurt your legacy more to go up and lose or to turn down? I mean, I, I mean I'm, I'm not sure the, what the answer to that is. I, I mean, I think if you are the biggest pay-per-view draw, it has to be because you appeal to more casual fans, that guys who don't ordinarily buy the UFC pay-per-views will buy it if they see George St. Pierre on there. If you go up to 185 and lose to Anderson Silva, I think a lot of hardcore fans 
media types like you and I will be like, oh, well, you know, no big deal, whatever. But does that hurt his drawing power with guys who might not, you know, think about it that way with guys who might not be so tuned into the sport that the only thing they'll know is like, oh, George St. Pierre lost this fight to Anderson Silva. I guess he's not as good as we thought he was, maybe. Yeah, that, and that's possible because yeah, I don't think anybody who knows uh, would feel like his legacy was really harmed by losing to Anderson Silva. I mean, shit, you know, that that seems like what should happen if they fight. So, yeah, there, I guess there's that. Um, but at the same time, how great would you feel about yourself if, you know, 10, 20 years from now, is George St. Pierre going to be sitting around wondering, I wonder if I could have beat Anderson Silva. I wonder what would have happened if I would have taken that chance, taken that fight, you know. I, I don't know. I, it seems to me like the same kind of person who is motivated enough to become the greatest fighter in their weight class uh, would not be happy with having that doubt in his head. I think eventually he would want to find out. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that, I mean, it seems like we're going to see the fight. I mean, it seems like it'll probably happen. Uh, and you will insist that you are not jacked when it happens, even though we will all know that you are jacked. <laughs> I will watch it. I will just not have the highest hopes. Let's just say that. You will come over to my house and watch it so you don't have to pay for it. That's what you'll do. Well, that's what I do all the time now. <laughs> uh, well, let's, before we move into the next round, let's, let's do uh, tips for a well-rounded fight fan, the part of the show where Ben and I bring up something that we have both enjoyed that we feel that you may enjoy as well. No promises. Ben, what, uh, what's your tip for the well-rounded fight fan this week? My tip is a film, a documentary film uh, about a, a platoon in Afghanistan uh, it's called Restrepo, uh, and it's from, I think, 2010, uh, and I don't know, I had never heard of it until I saw it referenced online somewhere, and then I went to look and see if it's on Netflix streaming, since that's how we watch movies these days, because what the fuck is a video store? Uh, and sure enough, it's on there, and so I started watching it, and it's actually kind of amazing, um, but also like in a sort of depressing, soul-crushing way, because it's about the war in Afghanistan, uh, but... You know, great documentary footage, both in Afghanistan while the stuff is going on, and then afterwards talking to the guys who made it home, and and uh, it really gives you a lot of different ways to think about the war in Afghanistan and the real cost of it, both for Afghans and for Americans. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's not it's not exactly a, a fun watch. You know, it's not it's not Iron Man two, uh, <laughs> but. Uh, it is something I feel like is worth seeing um, just as a thinking citizen. More or less soul-crushing, do you think, than The Good Soldiers? You know, uh, a lot like The Good Soldiers, because it's like a year in their lives in Afghanistan, much like The Good Soldiers was a, a year in the life of uh, troops in Iraq. Um, but there is definitely, you know, there's a different angle when you actually are seeing, like there, you can see the scenes where they're trying to sit down and talk mm. to the elders in the village. And it's like what happens when you take like a 25-year-old uh, army officer and you put him in charge of trying to negotiate with these like 60-year-old Afghan elders who are like, well, you're just like the, the other guy uh, who killed a bunch of our people. So, And you can just see them trying to talk and you know that this is not going to work. <laughs> uh, and it's just... You know, you can see the kind of the desperation on his face and just the we've been through this shit before look on the other people's faces. And you know that it's just going to end with people machine gunning each other in the fucking mountains. Uh, the Good Soldiers, by the way, I don't know if we've ever actually recommended it on I the podcast. Did, did you? It's a great, know. great book, nonfiction great book. book about uh, soldiers in Iraq. Uh, if you're into that kind of thing, check it out because it is really, really good. Uh, my tip for the well-rounded fight fan this week is, is another book, uh, a book called City of Bohan by Kevin Barry. And uh, the word Bohan is, is with an E on the end of it, B-O-H-A-N-E, so don't be fooled. But uh, it's, it's a story about a, a, a futuristic uh, town in Ireland. It's a fictional story um about sort of like gang warfare and uh and it's very stylistically done it kind of reminded me of clockwork orange in a lot of ways because the dude just sort of writes kind of reinvented the english language to write it it's very good wow that seems like the kind of thing you would hate it's probably not for everybody i'll be honest with you but uh if you can get into it i really enjoyed it it came highly recommended from my brother uh zach dundas who is a literary type of his own right um and uh check it out man it's it's good it's a good book 
Uh, anyway, that's tips for the well-rounded fight fan this week. We will be right back with round number three. That starts right now. Round three. Well, Chad, I know you love talking about Ronda Rousey over and over and over again. Just a like a like a dude trapped in this beautiful fucking body. Oh, can we stop with that? <laughs> it makes me uncomfortable. I know it. I love it. Uh, it's an employee. One of his employees. <laughs> and it is. It, she is a UFC employee now, uh, according to Dana White. Also, according to Dana White, she is the only uh, female fighter to be a UFC employee. Um, Dana White said during the, the media scrum following the UFC 154 press conference that 135 pounds is the only weight class they're doing for women right now. Uh, and that he is trying this out, uh, this being women's MMA. Uh, and so far, Ronda Rousey is the only one signed on the roster. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not encouraged by that as far as what it means for the future of women's MMA in the UFC, especially if Strikeforce is going away uh, and the UFC is going to try and pick it up. If they're just trying it out and they're just going to do 135 and it's clearly just going to be the Ronda Rousey show, what the hell, man? Yeah, you and I are both on the record, I believe, having said that we both think that the women's MMA and Ronda Rousey will be fine in the UFC so long as, you know, they promote it right, they build a division instead of building around one single fighter, and that Ronda Rousey turns out to be as good of a fighter as they think that she is. As you were saying, those are not encouraging words, I don't think, from the UFC president, and I was also not encouraged when I watched the interview he did with Helwani prior to UFC 154, where he talked about uh, the women's division. In a way, I feel like starting with one weight class is okay. I, I think it's probably the best idea to start small. But one of the things he said about the 135-pound class was, this is, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, it's not an exact quote, but he said, there are four or five good fights for her over the next couple of years. Yeah. And that, to me, just sounds way, way, way too Ronda Rousey-centric for me to be comfortable with it because what if she comes out and loses her first fight? What if you get the UFC uh, belt made for her, like they say <laughs> that they're doing right now, and she comes out and she loses her first fight? Then will the UFC remain committed to, the, to women's MMA at any weight class? Uh, so I would feel a lot better if the tenor of the discussion was more about you know the, how there is enough talent at that division to carry it in the UFC and not seemingly without them really noticing it just kind of be all about them just talking about Ronda Rousey. Yeah, and see that's what surprises me is not not so much that that Dana White would view it that way, but that he would come out so openly and describe his views on it that way because it seems like you ought to have, you know, enough of a understanding of of the the landscape there to not just say hey, we were we just want to do this because we like Ronda Rousey. Like, it seems like you should at least pretend to be interested in women's MMA. Yeah, at least, at least mention someone sake. else's name, <laughs> you know, besides Cyborg Santos, Santos, who I guess maybe for the first time in her life is going to take the, the advice of her doctors yeah. and not cut down to 135 pounds. Okay, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, as anyone who has ever tried to get out of PE knows, the doctor's note excuse uh, is not, it's not the magic bullet that I think <laughs> Cyborg Santos thinks it is. You're not just going to be like, I talked to my doctor, said don't cut to 135, so sorry, I can't do it, let's do 145. It's not going to work that way. Also, you were on fucking steroids. Like, yeah. we found that out when you popped positive for it. Uh, and also, you are a pro fighter. What does your doctor advise about being a pro fighter on steroids yeah. and how that might affect your chances of having a baby in the future? This I mean, just in... Cyborg Santos's doctors are horrified by all the other shit she's been doing. <laughs> I mean, also, if you went to ask a doctor about pretty much any typical weight cut that pro fighters regularly make, I'm guessing that most of those doctors would tell you it was a bad idea. I mean, you might even if you could do it and even if you do it over and over again, I'm guessing that those fighters or the doctors would be like, Ideally, you would not be doing this to your body. Just like right. ideally, you would not be getting hit in the head. Yeah. Oh, but, you get punched in the head for a living? That's fine. Just don't cut too much weight, though, you yeah. know, because that's and, what we're really concerned about. And the about. occasional steroids, that's cool, too. Uh, but 
yeah, that's that's the part where you lose me, Cyborg Santos. You really should have thought that one through to know that the doctor's note excuse uh, was not going to get you out of this. But again, you know, if if that is the case that the UFC is doing 135 and that they're they're all about Ronda Rousey, I would think Cyborg Santos ought to be smart enough to realize that that's this is your chance. Yeah, this is as good as it gets yeah. for Cyborg Santos from here on out, especially now that you know uh, Strike Force isn't going to be around anymore. So there's no real making nice with those guys. Um, You know, I understand on one hand the UFC's interest in Ronda Rousey because I do think that she can be, I don't even know, I don't know if I want to say a star because I don't know, it's impossible to project like how marketable and how big of a success that she will be. But she is a person that is going to get attention from the mainstream media. They will give her the sort of John Jones treatment on ESPN where when she fights, they will have her on Sports Center. You know, they yeah. will put her through the car wash, as they call it, that the, that she'll do all you these different shows. Uh, now I said it twice in yeah. one episode. Somebody's going to send me an angry tweet about it, I'm sure. Oh, you yeah. say car wash too much on the podcast. <laughs> uh, she is going to get that attention. So I understand why the UFC is interested in her. On the other hand, they're talking about having her first fight in the UFC be a main event and the way that they talk about her makes it seem like she's the entire division. And it kind of makes me wonder if it's kind of going to be a too much too soon kind of a thing, because I, I believe honestly in the product that is women's MMA. And I think if people see it, they will like it, but I feel like to throw her and somebody else who's never fought in the UFC out there as a main event fight is kind of a mistake because I don't know how many people will see that on the poster and be like, Oh, I have to get that. Whereas well, I think if you put it on the, like maybe the co-main of, of, of a fight that would sell, then I think people would watch it and be like, oh, this is actually kind of badass. Well, what Dana said about it after the press conference was that uh, if it's a title fight, you know, title fights are, are main event stuff. And I agree with that. It, it would bug me when Strikeforce would uh, put the, the women's title up for grabs and it would not be the main event. Uh, or when, you know, some other company does it and they'll put their women's champion, like Bellator, put their women's champion, uh, you know, on the way down on the undercard. I mean, you shouldn't do that. If it's a title fight, it's a title fight, whether they're women or men. So I, I agree. If it were the only title fight on the card, then yeah, it should be the main event. I do though, for the purposes of kind of hooking people on it and getting them to watch it, I agree. It might be smart if you did that on another fight card that, that already had a different title fight. Uh, and Dano said that, you know, if there's a title, another title fight on the card that is at a higher weight, then that would be the main event. And right. then the Rousey, whatever, uh, would be the co-main event. Right. You know, that to me is, is not as worrisome as the blatant, like, Ronda Rousey-centric nature of the whole thing. Because if you're yeah. saying, like, hey, guess what? We have a women's division now. We have our first women's champion. Also the only person in that division. Yeah. Like you, We have a woman division. Not, yeah. <laughs> One person d- doesn't make a division. One person doesn't even make a fight. You need at least two people to have a fight, and preferably many more to have a division. It'd be like if Shaq was really serious about becoming a UFC fighter, and but there was like, okay, we'd need to create a, a super heavyweight division in order for him to compete in it. And But the UFC saw the upside and was like, okay, no, just introduce. We, we started a super heavyweight division. As of now, it has one fighter, Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, awesome. When does he fight? I'll buy it. I'm there. Yeah, I mean, it just lets you know that, okay, you're not really interested in doing the division. You're interested in in having one person fight for you. And it also is then going to fuel criticism and speculation if you start giving that person, obviously, winnable fights. Like, if you can't make the Cyborg Santos fight and you give Ronda Rousey somebody else, it seems like they're just there to get beat up by Ronda Rousey to make her look good. You know, everybody's going to... They're going to see what you're doing. Right. The, the thing that I think could really tell the tale is when and if they start signing other fighters, right? Because you would assume that that would have to have to happen before uh, they throw Ronda out there in a fight. Right. And like if they only sign one person, if they only sign Sarah McMahon or, you know, Shayna Baszler or even Misha Tate for a rematch, which I think would be a real tip off yeah. with what we're dealing with here. Uh, you know, if they only sign one person and Ronda fights her, then I think you've got. A real problem on your hands yeah, but and, I mean, you know if if you start to see you know more and more of these women who fight in invicta or have fought in bellator come out and say hey i just signed with the ufc then i think that might be encouraging you know it, it would and dana white pointed out when because i think when he first said when somebody asked do you have any other fighter signed other than ronda rousey and he said no and then i think he's kind of saw a look on people's faces and he was like 
But all the Strike Force fighters that are under contract with Strike Force, those are Zufa fighters. In other words, like you could have them, you know, you could bring them over whenever you want. Um, but then it also like begs the question: Well, then why, if that's the case, why did you need to sign Ronda Rousey at all? Like, if you already have them, then you didn't need to do that and make such a big deal about it. Yeah, and then not to totally change the subject, but isn't that sort of the exact opposite of what we've heard for like the past two years? For him to suddenly just be like, "Oh yeah, no, we we have all those Strike Force fighters. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, they're they're under contract with us. <laughs> like, what? Wait a second. Yeah. It also though to me like again, I just don't understand the position that. Even if you are all about Ronda Rousey right now, like why only one division? Like why not? If, if you're gonna do it, like why not do 125 where there's just more fighters? I would hope that at least that's in the long term plans. That if Dana's trying this out, that maybe he'll try it out and it'll go pretty well, and then he'll be like, okay, now let's add some other weight classes because otherwise you're just not gonna have enough fights, like enough women's fights to have it be a real thing. It'll just be like a sideshow attraction. Uh, it really, I think like detract from uh, a lot of people's ability to take it seriously if you do it so infrequently. And it's clearly just a way to put Ronda Rousey on TV. Yeah. That's the thing. I think a lot of it is going to come down to how they, how much they promote this, how they promote it, you know, what the, what the promotional tax that they take are. Uh, And, and as we said, I think last week, like just trying something out puts you in kind of a weird position because if you try it out and then you're like, Oh, actually we're not going to do that. Not sure that that doesn't make you, you know, look that great yeah. as far as being a, a promoter of the sport. And especially if, because if you try to envision the scenarios in which the UFC would try it out and then decide, no, we didn't like that after all, the most likely scenario seems to be one in which Ronda Rousey goes out and loses, whether her first fight or third or fourth or fifth, whatever. Uh, you know, if that's what happens, if you lose Ronda Rousey as champion and then she can't get the title back, and then that's when you decide, you know what, we don't like this after all then, dude, it makes it just fucking obvious that you just wanted to be in the Ronda Rousey business. Yeah. Uh, and then it just seems creepy and weird and wrong. Yeah, and, you know, to be honest, that's the kind of shit that for years and years we've always looked at the UFC and have been like, oh, they don't do this kind of stuff. Yes, That's exactly. what separates you from Elite XC and, you know, affliction. You don't go yeah. in the one fighter business and then have to uh, pay Tim Sylvia $800,000. <laughs> that's that shit I don't like, Chad. Anyway, let's uh, speaking of that shit we don't like, let's do Just Saying Stuff for the week and then we'll get out of here. Um, just Saying Stuff is the part of the show where Ben and I both make statements that we are not then asked to follow up or defend or, you know, comment further on in any way because at the end of the day, we're just saying stuff. Uh, I'm just saying this week that CBS Sports basketball analyst and I guess SportsIllustrated.com, I assume, writer... <laughs> Seth Davis uh, proved himself to be a real dumb motherfucker this week (laughs) when he uh, tweeted a couple of things about quote unquote UFC like uh, looking on news sites showing pictures of two muscular bloody men in a homoerotic fighting pose. Sorry, I'll never get this UFC thing. So I guess Seth Davis is coming out and revealing that he doesn't like the UFC or apparently homosexuals. He then goes on to tweet. Wait, if they were if they were less attractive, would he be okay with it? Because they seemed the muscular, sweaty men thing. It seemed like. Well, you see, now you're reading into it. Okay. Now you're reading into it. Uh, his his second tweet on the subject was maybe I'm a prude. Huh. Yeah, that seems like a weird word to use. Uh, on this, but I'm also a dad. I don't mind my sons watching boxing, but I wouldn't want them watching a UFC bout. Now look. How would you feel about hardcore gay pornography? <laughs> if you are so hopelessly behind the times that, A, you think that calling MMA homoerotic is somehow novel, or B, you think that something being homoerotic is somehow bad, then the fact is, I don't want you watching my sport anyway. Yeah. So I guess we're all winners this week, <laughs> Seth Davis, you dumb motherfucker. Just saying. Just saying. I'm just saying. Chad, I, I spoke... A little bit with Matt Riddle after his fight about his medical marijuana situation. As you know, his fight uh, in in Calgary uh, was his win was changed to a no contest when he tested positive for marijuana, and then he he subsequently revealed that he is actually a medical marijuana patient in Nevada. Uh, and you know, like a lot of people, sometimes when I hear that somebody's a medical marijuana patient, I hear, okay, you went to a, a doctor who would play ball, and you said you ha- had anxiety. So that you could have permission to get get access to that that good 
good sticky icky, as the kids say. Um, Matt Riddle is actually very passionate that medical marijuana has been a great thing for him, that it's the best treatment for his ADHD and uh, appetite problems and just general personality problems, and that he is a much more likable and better person when he is on it. Uh, and I'm just saying that the fact that we're even making this an issue, that we're still testing guys for a drug that is no longer active, um, but still shows up on these tests weeks after the last time you used it, and which is clearly not a performance enhancer in any meaningful uh, definition of the word, I'm just saying it's ridiculous and it's way out of date. Let's look around. The country is changing its attitude on marijuana. Athletic commissions and the UFC should do the same. I'm just saying any sport that allows testosterone and does not allow marijuana is fucking insane. He's just saying. He's just saying. Well, that is the show for this week. We will be back next week to continue breaking down the wild and woolly and homoerotic world of mixed martial arts. I'm Chad Dundas from ESPN.com. That's been folks from MMAJunkie.com and USA Today. That's it for this week's show. We're done. We're through. We're out. Do you think if the fighters wore like those old timey bathing suits that women used to wear in like the twenties, like so that striped kind of uh, yeah, like that go down to their ankles, and then we couldn't see how muscular and sweaty they are as they roll the top of it? Do you think you'd be okay with it? I don't know, man. You'd have to check in with Seth Davis. Yeah.